service this morning. We praise God for that. Uh, we, we're grateful you're here. If you're visiting, we want to say special thanks for you having chosen to be with us today as well. Uh, we have participated in Operation Christmas Child for many years now. Uh, too many for me to even recognize. But this morning we have a special speaker, Tracy, uh, who as a regional manager is going to come and introduce him to us. And also with them is Amanda from Homerville. She's been here before, but not in our worship services. So come on, Tracy, introduce him, and we'll worship together. Thank you so much. Oh, church, we're so grateful for you and your participation with Operation Christmas Child. Um, and this is a church that's been a partner with us for a long time, as he said. And you know that this ministry is more than a shoebox gift. This is about evangelism, discipleship, and multiplication. And churches are being planted because you not only pack shoeboxes here, but you receive those boxes from the community. So we are so grateful for your partnership. And it is my honor to present Alex Senjimanich this morning. He is from Rwanda, and he has an incredible story of hope and forgiveness that God has given him through this simple shoebox gift. So please welcome Alex to the podium. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to share with you uh, what, how God used Operation Christmas Child to impact my life. Uh, it's a joy to be here. Before I jump into uh, the testimony, let me say a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for a brand new day you've made us to enjoy. Share testimonies that we talk about the miracles that you've done. Father, may uh, you use to encourage someone in this room today. May, and may all the conversation that we have today, Father, be to the glory of uh, Introducing to my wife, we can, uh, if we're able to get the PowerPoint, um, the picture on the, on the, on the screen. I wanted to, uh, to in introduce you real quick. And um, oh, a little bit too fast. Uh, that's me and my wife. Uh, my wife and I, has, uh, God had a, a way of bringing people together. So from me being from originally from Rwanda and my wife from Brenton, Missouri. So there's a, there's a lot of miles in between us, but the Lord brought us together. And in 2017, we got married. We just celebrated uh, four years uh, in April. Uh, we're grateful we get a chance to serve the Lord together. We get to do ministry together. Uh, I want to show you... Um, so this is the country of Rwanda. That's the flag and that's the map of Rwanda. Uh, like many other countries on the continent of Africa, Rwanda was colonized by uh, Belgium and Germany in the 1800s. During the colonial time, the people of Rwanda were divided in tribes. And those tribes were the Hutus, the Tutsis, and the Twa. Now, they would figure out what tribe you were by literally getting a ruler and measuring, measuring the length of your nose. And I would say, if you're very tall and slim, that means you're a Tutsi. And if you're very short and very muscular built, that means you're a Hutu. They came up with these distinctions to divide the people, and hatred was created between the Hutus and the Tutsis because they said, hey, the, the Hutus are the ones who do a lot of the labor work the, in the fields. And the Tutsis are the ones who are on power running uh, the country because at that time, Rwanda had a monarchy. And so, the, the colonies wanted to have their way into the land. And they, the, the, the monarchy really didn't like the fact that the, the colonies were just doing their own thing and wanting to manipulate the people of Rwanda. And so the colonies went and favored the Hutus in order to create hatred. A little spark, a little seed of hatred was planted then and to the point where in the 1950s, a lot of the 
actually a lot of people fled the country because they were being um, segregated against, they were being tortured here and there, so they left the country. Those who left the country and went to Uganda and Tanzania eventually formed an army and they would call themselves the Rwandan Patriotic Front who would come later on to try to stop the government that came on. Because in 1960s, Rwanda got, got its independence and when, got, when the independence took place, the very first government that came on was considered to be Hutu government. And so at this time, because people who had grown up in this hatred, believing that, that their fellow neighbors who were Tutsis were bad people, they believed it to the point where now hatred had power when the, the government came on. I remember as a little boy going to school and the teacher, teachers would take rock holes according to what tribe you were. So if you were a Tutsi in, in a class of 30 Hutus, you felt like you didn't belong. And that was the goal, to make sure people didn't feel like they were humans anymore. The ideology names that were being used at this time was tall trees and cockroaches. And they were saying that one day, there's going to be a day when all the tall trees will be cut down. And there's going to be a day when all the cockroaches will be crushed. And so there, there was this, this talk in the, in the neighborhoods, in the villages, but in 1994, the big genocide I would've heard of, uh, maybe you re read in the books, even you remember the time when it was, you could hear it on the news, is that when the Rwandan president was assassinated, that became the spark of this genocide against this Tutsi tribe. And so from April 6th to July 4th, uh, 1994, about 100 days, over a million people were killed, and 400,000 orphans were left in the country. And so at this time, I was a little boy being raised by my grandmother. We lived in a small little village, and I remember waking up one morning and hearing noise from a distance, and I had no idea what the noise was. And our neighbor came to us and said, hey, the noise you're hearing right now, those are bombs going off from a distance because uh, the president was assassinated last night, and there's uh, killing, killing have begun. There's roadblocks everywhere. And so me and my brother and my sister and my uncles and my grandmother, we, we were just scared. And our grandmother was even scared even more because she had survived all these years of hatred, uh, of bullying in the, in the villages. And so we went and hid for that morning. And it was in the afternoon, we thought, you know, there's no, we couldn't hear anything, we couldn't hear any commotion happening in our village, so we came back to our house. And we got into the house and closed all the doors. And then all of a sudden, we had a knock on the door, and it happened to be militias, Hutu militias who had just come to our house. And they would uh, break the door off the house and they would yell at me and my brother and my sister and our grandmother to go outside and, and lie down. And in that moment, that's when they would tell me and my brother and my sister to go back inside the house. And that's when they would kill our grandmother. And we would be thinking, why in the world are these people doing this to us? Because these were not strangers. These were people we knew by name. These were people we grew up with. We collected water at the same well. And so for, as a six-year-old, I could not fathom that my own neighbor would all of a sudden turn their backs on us and do this to our family. So they left. So at this time, me and my brother, my sister, and our two uncles were at the house. Uh, the goal during the genocide was to wipe out the young generation of Tutsis. And the other goal was to wipe out families beginning with the um, father figures, the people who provided for the families. And so they would come looking for my uncle, and one of my uncles was known to be the one who was taking care of us, and, and so they would come looking for him. 
they could not find him because when, when they were looking into the house, we had hid him under the bed. So when they were doing and throwing their weapons under the bed, they couldn't get to him because he, he pulled himself on the springs of the bed. So they left. But three days later, three men with their weapons came back and said, he's under the bed, let him get out. And he was, about to he was hesitating a little bit, taking his, his time. And they said, if he doesn't come out, we're going to destroy the house. And the last words was that he said was, please, don't destroy the house. My kids need a place to live. So he comes outside. They ask for his identity card. At the age of 18 and older, you had to have an identity card. And that identity card said what tribe you were. And of course, he was a Tutsi, and that's when they also take his life. Again, me and my brother thinking, why are these people doing this to us? We are there, we are in tears, and we, we don't even want to even have a conversation with them because they may turn their, you know, they may t take our lives as well. So they leave us alone there. The other uncle who was with us, for the following week, he would leave us during the day and would be wondering, why is he? Because, you know, he's not, he's not taking care of us. He's leaving us at the, at, at the house. And our little house was close to the road, so there was no fence anywhere. So any, literally anybody could walk by and, and get into the house and, or see us. And so little did we know that actually the following week, he would bribe the militias. And when he, he had no money left, he would bribe the militias by buying them beer so that they can leave us alone. And so he, he did that for a week. When he had no money left, he came to us and said, look, you need to leave this village. Go to the city, stay with your aunt. And uh, because if you stay here they can't, and they come back, I cannot stop them. So we, we walked to the city. And it's about an hour and a half walk from the village to the city. And uh, as we were walking, we come to these roadblocks. And these men have their weapons in their hands. And they would say, turn around. They would call us over and they say, turn around, and we thought, you know, this is it. And then all of a sudden, they would just say, just keep walking. So several, several occasions that happened, but we got to our aunt's house. In the city, it was getting worse. During this time, the water supply had been destroyed, and it was just a rough time for the, people, for the country. And I remember uh, when we would uh, come to landlocked, in the north you have Uganda, south you have Burundi, east you have Tanzania, and the west you have Congo. Landlocked country full of mountains. And I remember when we were running, 2,000 people just running everywhere. We get into this valley uh, after climbing hills. We get into this valley and I hear this noise coming from a distance. And this is the most vivid way that God saved my life, very humorous. Um, I get into this valley and I hear this noise coming from a distance. And all of a sudden, that noise missed my head because I slipped and fell to the ground. When I fell, I realized that that noise was a bullet and missed my head because I had slipped and fell in a cow party. And that's how the white girl used to save my life. <laughs> I never thought that years later I'll be telling people that God used a cow party to save my life. Um, I don't tell that this morning to gross you out. I love to share that detail because it shows the humor of our Lord. Because, uh, and I also love to carry on his humor and say, look, if he can use that, he can use anything. So never underestimate the power of God. Uh, next time, you, if you live on a farm or you, see you grow up on a farm, you know they're just gross, but God uses that as well. But at the end of running and lost all hope, I was put in an orphanage by my aunt. And I get into this orphanage. And in this orphanage, we had 250 kids in a facility that was built for only 60 people. And life in the orphanage was rough. In the night, now that we're not running physically, our minds were reliving everything we had seen through the war. 
and that came post-traumatic stress was so great. But one day we were told to line up in the yard and they said you're going to get a gift and this is a special day, you're going to get a gift. And I remember we ran where the kids are in, in, the, in the picture, that's where we lined up. And they hand out these gifts and then they said do not open them until all of them have been handed out. Now imagine telling a seven-year-old to hold a Christmas present for five minutes. That's a long time. Don't do that to your grandkids uh, or kids this, this Christmas. They wanted us to experience a moment together, and we got to open the shoeboxes. All of us were screaming. But this time, it was a different kind of a screaming. We were not scared. We were not running for our lives. But this time, we were so excited that we could not contain the joy of getting a gift for the first time. And I remember as I opened my shoebox, seeing school supplies, hygiene items, toys, little bouncy balls, and all these uh, coloring books. You know, I remember this overshaped watercolor where you would take the brush, you dip it in the water, and then you would dip it in a paint, and you would make new memories. All those were, uh, it was so special to have those, uh, uh, those, uh, uh, those sh uh, shoebox items. But deep inside my shoebox was something that I had no idea what it was. And this item was my favorite item in the shoebox. This item was red and white. This item didn't smell good, so I just decided to eat it. And halfway through it, I realized that item was actually wrapped in plastic and had enjoyed it with it. And um, that was my first time eating a, a candy cane. <laughs> and up to today, every time I see a candy cane, I remember receiving my Operation Christmas Child Shoebox gift. And I found out, actually, the candy cane tastes better without the wrapper. <laughs> so I took it, eventually I took the wrapper off and I, I found it out. But today, we cannot do candy and toothpaste anymore. So I tell people, you know, I'm going to eat the candy cane, but I'm going to put something else in my shoeboxes today. <laughs> and so if you didn't know, uh, ca candy and toothpaste were causing co customer regulations, so the ministry decided not to do candy and toothpaste anymore. So, so spread, spread the word. Uh, but the shoebox planted seeds of hope and love of Jesus Christ in my life. I don't have any of the items that were in my shoebox at that time. But today, the tangible items, the ones I can hold, the item that I kept the longest was a hair comb. And that hair comb, I kept it for three years. Everywhere I went, in my pocket, I had my hair comb. Just like you have your cell phone in your pocket every time you go, um, that was me with my hair comb. But today, I have the hope and love of Jesus Christ. The seeds were planted. Because a year later, at a time when I had lost, when I was starting to struggle and asking God, where were you? Do you care about me? I joined a choir and I left Rwanda and I was in Uganda. At this time I was nine years old and I was so vulnerable. I was so vulnerable that even if any kind of religion would have come and give me hope, I would have grabbed on it. And I was so glad that God actually took me out of Rwanda and took me to Uganda in a foreign land where I did not speak the language. Um, I, and all I had was to focus on Him. And I was being discipled. The, uh, the choir was watering the seeds that were planted in my life through that shoebox gift. And I remember reading the Bible, and I'm, 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 starting, I'm asking these questions. How can a God, uh, I'm reading the Bible, and you, you would tell me that we're all created in the image of God, that God sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us. And I'm asking, how can a God like that watch while a million of his children are being killed in Rwanda? Why would he take away my grandmother, my uncle, uh, my mother, my mother passed away when, of HIV AIDS when I was very little and, never knew, and I never knew who my father was. So wh why? And I remember coming to this verse. I, I can vividly remember where I was, where I was seated when I read these words. In Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 11, a verse that is very familiar to us, 
Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11 through 13, it, it reads, uh, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans of welfare, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. As a nine-year-old, I did not know who God was talking to, but I remember in, a year, in about a year period studying about the, the Israelites' journey and seeing how many miracles God did for them in their lives from walking on dry land in the middle of the sea, when food fell from the sky, when they got water, but they forgot all those miracles to the point where they made a God for themselves to worship. And I looked at my own life and I realized I was doing exactly the same things. I blamed and pointed fingers at God that I missed out on the miracles that he actually did to protect me through the genocide. I missed out on the miracle that specifically that when my grandmother and my uncle were killed, I was right there. The distance was from the piano to where it was. There was no any wall to shelter us. Their goal was to wipe out the young generation of Tutsis. Why did they spare our lives? I missed out on the miracles that five men literally stood in front of me and my brother and my sister and they started to argue. Let's kill these kids. And one of them would say, why should we waste our energy on these kids? Look at them. There's no one around here to take care of them. Let's just keep walking. And they kept walking. I missed out on the miracle that that man's weapon didn't load when he went to pull the trigger. Instead, his magazine fell out of the weapon. I missed out on that miracle that when I was running and I slept in a cow party and I would miss my head by an inch. I missed out on the miracle of being in that orphanage, lost all hope, Nightmares after nightmares, God gave me a gift, a gift that put a smile on my face, a gift, a gift that reminded me to be a boy again. I didn't need anything big in that orphanage. All I needed to be was to, to be a child, and that's something that the genocide had taken away from us. And that Shubak's gift planted those seeds that now are being uh, watered. And so when I realized all those miracles, that's when I gave my love to the Lord. But I thought... I was going to sit back and sing Kumbaya as a Christian, as I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ in my life and everything was going to be all right. Now, don't get me wrong, it's the best decision I ever made in my life. The reason I was, I was struggling, even though I have given my life to the Lord, is because what was in my heart, um, it ha God, in order for Jesus Christ to come into my heart, he had to take away all the things that were in there that were not of him. And those, the things were in there was bitterness and anger and towards the people who killed my grandmother and my uncle. And I was so angry, I was so bitter to the point where actually, in my mind, if I would have seen the same people who did that to my family, I would have done exactly the same things. And that scared me. So one of the chaperones, as we came to the United States and traveled with a choir, called African Children's Choir, and we traveled the United States for about two and a half years, and we, we got to be discipled even more. And I remember one of the chaperones coming to me and saying, Alex, tell me your story. What happened that you're able to be here today? What happened? Tell, us, tell me your story. And I shared my story for the very first time. And I remember how therapeutic that was and how it felt. And then she said, Alex, what if you would sit with the person who has caused you the most pain in your life? What would you do? And so that question launched this desire, this prayer, Lord, help me to heal to the point where I can be able to sit with the person who has caused me the most pain. So I started to pray this prayer, and I was praying all this time. Within these 12 years, I traveled the United States with the choir, finished my time, and I went back to Rwanda in 2000. Then in 2003, God had a sense of humor, and I got adopted into a family in the United States. That, that's not the humor. The humor is where the family lived. Not in Hawaii, <laughs> not in Florida. Are you ready for this? 
Minnesota. <laughs> from Rwanda to Minnesota. From Rwanda where the coldest I had ever experienced was 55 uh, degrees to Minnesota where I probably experienced about 55 below zero. Uh, the Lord has a, have a, has a great sense of humor. But um, I, in high school, while I, was living in Min while I was living in Minnesota, I got, to I got introduced to Operation Christmas Child when the student council said, hey, let's park Operation Christmas Child. And I asked them, what is that? What is Operation Christmas Child? And they showed me the logo, and I was so excited. And I, the next day, I was sharing with the whole high school. And then in, the, in, in college, I went to a small little Bible college called Crossroads College in Rochester, Minnesota. And I took it on as a project. So I was a project leader at my school. And we got to pack shoeboxes every time. We would do a packing party where we would invite the students in the student center. And then we would watch Elf. And we would <laughs> make hot chocolate and would uh, pack shoeboxes. It was always a great fun weekend. Hey, that's an idea. If you're looking for an idea, you can have that idea. Uh, packing shoeboxes, watching a movie, whatever movie you would like. For me, my, one of my favorite was Elf to watch around that time. But it was always fun. But I didn't catch the vision until 2009 when I went to a processing center in Minneapolis at that time. And I got to learn about the, uh, the bigger picture of the ministry. I got to learn about the greatest journey, the discipleship program that goes with the boxes that many kids get an opportunity to go through. I got to learn even deeper that is Operation Christmas Child doesn't come and deliver the boxes and that's it. Operation Christmas Child partners with the local churches in each and every country that they deliver the boxes in. So it's the local person who speaks the language, who knows the culture, who has a heart to go into the heart to reach places in their own country to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And Operation Christmas Child gives them the tools. So the shoeboxes that you've packed over the years are tools for a pastor to share the good news of Jesus Christ to children in that country. Then I also learned about the year-round volunteer team here in the United States who are working so hard and going to their communities, who are using their God-given gifts uh, to be the voice of Operation Christmas Child so that one more shoebox can be packed, so one more child can hear the good news. When I learned about that, I went back to my school and we doubled the number of shoeboxes we were packing because I caught the vision. So it was, it was wonderful, but in, in, that was 2009. Then in 2013, I got an awesome opportunity to travel back to Rwanda with Operation Christmas Child and got to deliver shoeboxes in the same place I grew up in. And the picture you see on the screen is me translating a letter that a person had written to that child. I know if you have never done it, I, I, I highly encourage you to write a letter to that, to that child who's gonna receive your box. It's so wonderfully puts a personal note uh, touch to the shoebox. And um, just seeing the kids smile, kids, kids understanding how much God loves them uh, beyond, the, beyond the tangible items but they get a chance to hear about Jesus Christ. And on that trip though, something bigger happened in, uh, in my life. And this is the part that I wanna share with you um, and just pass on with you. Every time I share my testimony, I, um, I'm always grateful to be able to share what he has done because there's no way in my human nature I would be able to stand in front of you today. Um, in my journey of faith, I was praying, Lord, help me to heal to the point where I can be able to sit with the person who has caused me the most pain. So I always try to go and figure out the steps. I had been back to Rwanda in 2008, and I actually went to figure out where they were because the government of Rwanda decided to bring the people who committed crimes in the prisons, who were in the prisons, and they were taken to their village. And then um, and they were able to meet the people who they committed crimes against the victims. 
and the government was trying to bring these uh, people together so they can have reconciliation, they can have a moment of asking for forgiveness. It's beautiful what, what God has done. If you get a, a chance to just research a reconciliation process in Rwanda, you'll be amazed at the stories that came out of that uh, because many people are able to have closure. This victim here was able to ask, hey, just tell me where, I don't want anything, I don't, I'm not, I don't have anything against you anymore. I just need to know where did you put my relatives so that we can respectfully put them to rest. And so this closure was about to happen. Uh, and so then I remember going to this meeting and the only people who didn't show up was the guy who killed my grandmother and the guy who killed my uncle. And I was so lost and I was so angry and I was so bitter and asking, God, you gave me this opportunity to come this far, but you did not make it happen. I took my step but you're not taking yours, it's not fair. <laughs> but he knew that I was not ready. I thought I was ready. But on this trip in 2013, and I always tried to go to meet them, so I said, you know what, and let me try again. And I went to the prison and found out that the man who had killed my grandmother fled, but the man who had killed my uncle was still there. And it was a divine appointment that that meeting, was it, the process of getting paperwork, everything takes about about three weeks. In about three hours, we're able to have that conversation. The, the lady who actually is in charge of all the prisons in the country is the one who escorted us and made that meeting possible. And that's the man you see on the screen. And I was able to ask him, do you remember me? And he would say, no, I don't remember it specifically, but I remember three children being there. He would say, especially the older girl. Who was the older girl? My sister. In that moment, I would lose it. In that moment, I would be in tears. But I know that in that moment, God took my healing process at a different level um, because he was confirming that he was there. It was the hardest day of my life. That was March 15th of 2013. But it was also the most freeing day of my life, realizing in my anger and my bitterness, I didn't want to accept that man as God's child. I thought, surely, God loved me more because I was an innocent six-year-old boy. I thought God loved him less because he and his team killed more than 30 people in our village. But no, God loves us the same. When Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, he didn't just do it for me, for you. He did it for that man as well. And who am I to take that away from him? Uh, why do I share this story this, with you? It's a journey of faith that God has had, had, has had me on. Uh, but I share this with you to show you the power of God and what he can do. You've been part of uh, planting seeds of hope and love of Jesus Christ in, in kids' lives. And for me, the seeds that came in my life were came in the little shoebox as a seven-year-old living in an orphanage when I uh, lost all hope. And that is the good news that we're sending with each and every shoebox gift. Uh, I want a, a verse that communicates to me very, communicates very well of why I share this testimony with you this morning is uh, Psalms 105, verse 1 through 6. It reads, Psalms 105, verse 1 through 6, it says, O oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of all the wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done and his miracles and judgment that he altered. All that I just shared with you this morning is to show you the wondrous works that he's done, not only in my life, but in your life as well. And I want to pass on a question that has, was asked me before. And I asked the question, Alex, what if you do sit with a person who has caused you the most pain in your life? 
I don't know where you are today in your journey, but as I ask you that same question. Who is the man in your life on the screen? Who is that person in your life? Just take a moment and think of that person in your life who has caused you so much pain that you've never taken time to forgive them or to think about them. What if you left church today and you had to see that person? Maybe that person is your boss. Maybe that person is your friend. Maybe that person is your own family member. Maybe that person is your ex. Or maybe that person is your own self and you did something and you've never taken time to forgive yourself and every time you see that in the mirror you see that person and you remember the pain and you're living that fear in that bitterness let me tell you what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us he did it for you and he did it for that person and I hope and pray that this morning can be the beginning the launching pad of you living that freedom of Jesus Christ that he offered on the cross when he said he finished we don't have to live in that bondage anymore and that is the good news of Jesus Christ we want each and every child to have. I share with you this morning, there's three things that I prayed for to happen, and one of them happened, and two of them have not happened yet, and I'm still on this, I'm, I'm still on this journey, and I'm gonna share this with you. One of them, you are, you are looking at on the screen, but the other ones is they're lighthearted, it's the next step, so I wanna share with you the next step that uh, we're on, on this journey of, uh, uh, of faith and forgiveness is I want to go back to Rwanda and run the route that I ran through the genocide as a way of celebrating God's miracles that he did. I mapped it out on Google, thank God for technology, and it came to about 28 miles. So I want to go back and run it. So then I also, the other one, I want to buy a goat someday. So I, I would explain. My brother and I were goat herders when we were little, and so our neighbors gave, said, hey, take care of our goats. When you, they give birth to their kids, you're going to have a goat someday. So the genocide happened. I missed out on getting my goat. So I don't know about you. I'm going to get my goat someday. <laughs> but I asked this, what's your next step? Maybe your next step is to stop blaming the Lord Jesus Christ for everything that has happened in your life. Um, all the pain has been caused you. Maybe you've never accepted him as your Lord and Savior, still pointing things at him. Maybe your next step is to really remember the miracles that he's done in your life. Maybe your next step is to share the good news of Jesus Christ with your neighbors, with your friends. Maybe your next step is to actually um, use your God-given gifts to be able to be a voice for children all over the world. And Operation Christmas Child has many opportunities to do that. So whatever next step is in your life, don't miss it out uh, because God can continue to guide you through that. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. And Father, I pray for this community, Lord. Thank you for their partnership in sending your good news to, Jesus, uh, your good news to children all over the world. God, I pray that you continue to guide them, Lord. And I pray if there's anybody in this room, Lord, who is just um, dealing with that bitterness, that anger, Father, that you may uh, guide them and remind them of your presence, Father. And Father, if there's that person you're calling to uh, serve you in different ways, uh, to take that next step in uh, being a voice for, for you, Lord, through uh, Operation Christmas Child and different uh, volunteer opportunities that we have, Father, you may continue to guide them, Lord, to do so. We love you, Jesus, and we give you all the glory. In your name, amen.